like I mentioned, we're going to look at the sixth church in the, in the book of Revelation. Uh, but before we dive in, I want to pray once more before we kind of jump in. So can you bow your heads with me as I pray for the word? Um, Father, we thank you for uh, this morning uh, as the worship uh, uh, team led us in declaring that you have no equal and no rival, Father. We pray that uh, uh, we thank you and we're in awe that you have decided to show up and be present with us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, we invite you into our hearts and into the, uh, this next uh, few minutes as we dig into your scriptures. Pray that your word will go forth, it will bear much fruit, uh, that you will convict and com- comfort our hearts even as we look at these, uh, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Pray for uh, your mercies upon our lives. I would pray that uh, I specifically pray for the shortcomings in my own life that will not hinder the word that needs to go forth. We we'll pray for the word that uh, that will uh, settle into our hearts, it will de- uh, develop roots, and that the message will be able to uh, bear fruit in our own lives, that we might be able to glorify your name. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So a couple of things that um, I don't think we've actually seen a map of what the uh, seven churches or where they're located. I believe this is a uh, kind of a summary of where the seven churches are located. And so you'll notice we've looked at um, five of them over the last few weeks, and we're looking at the sixth one today. And so if you notice where uh, the sixth church is, it's the church in Philadelphia. And we read about this, uh, the letter to this church in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 on. Uh, but just a few, a couple of uh, background uh, information before we look at that, uh, before we look at the passage. One is when we think about the church in Philadelphia, it was what we would consider a Greek outpost. Uh, the, the Greek uh, territory in that area um, knew or figured that uh, one of the ways that they could keep wars from happening or getting into trouble with their neighboring nations uh, is to make, basically make them all like the Greeks think like the Greeks, act like the Greeks, that will keep them from being attacked by the barbarians who lived past uh, their, their territory. And so uh, Philadelphia was uh, strategically positioned for that. It was essentially an outpost that uh, propagated the Greek culture, Greek life, and Greek religions. And um, it was so uh, like the Greek culture that it was referred to as Little Athens. So if you think about Athens as the most popular city in Greece, uh, Philadelphia was considered to be a little Athens, basically a replica of what uh, the Greeks hoped for uh, with, uh, with, um, that would happen in Philadelphia. That was the first thing I think that we need to keep in mind. The second thing we uh, know about the church historically was that uh, the Christians in that, ch- in that city were persecuted by the Jews who were not happy with the message that was propagated by or proclaimed by the Christians. And so that, was, that is critical for us to keep in mind as we look at this, story, uh, this letter that uh, Jesus writes to the church. And the last thing was the fact uh, where they were geog- geographically. So um, as with some of these other uh, cities, uh, the city of Philadelphia was plagued with earthquakes. It was on a, a fault line, and so um, what you, what you, we know from historical records that they constantly experienced earthquakes. And uh, that's important as we look at this passage because Jesus kind of uses some of that imagery to address um, specific concerns in their lives. And so uh, one of the things that would happen with these earthquakes is when the earthquakes would hit, the um, inhabitants of the city would leave the city and come back once the earthquakes were over just to find the ruins of the city. And so it was, not a, it was a common 
thing that they experienced and they were used to it uh, by now. But one of the other things that would happen too is uh, because of that, a lot of the people in the city of Philadelphia would uh, live on the outskirts of the city instead of in the city because they were afraid of the earthquakes. And so just some background information as we kind of dig into what Jesus had to say uh, to this church in Revelation chapter 3. Okay, so the passage that we're going to look at is in Revelation chapter 3, and verses 7 on. I'm just going to read quickly uh, before we dig in. And so in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, Jesus writes, or excuse me, John writes to Jesus' message to the church and says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own name, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here uh, we read, a couple, uh, we read uh, uh, Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia and just want to point out a few things before we dig in about, specifically about the church. One, you'll notice that unlike Sardis that we looked at last week where it was like, I have this against you, this against you, this against you, this against you. Uh, to the church in Philadelphia, he has very, no criticism uh, that he lists in this letter. He only uh, commends them, or he only praises them for their uh, perseverance and their steadfastness. So that's something that's uh, unique about this church. And there's only one other church that uh, we notice in the seven churches that did not have any criticism against them. And Philadelphia is one of them. Uh, so they, were not, they not only did not have any criticism, they were commended for their faith. But one of the things, um, if, you, if you look at all of what Jesus says in this letter... And as we keep in mind the historical background of the city, we can boil down all of what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia with this statement. That is, when the, life, when the trials in your life threaten to cloud your hope, hold fast to Jesus. It's basically what, uh, what you can sum up all of what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. Is when the trials in life threaten to cloud your hope, hold fast to Jesus. And so we're just going to explore that theme of uh, perseverance and holding fast to Jesus in today's, uh, today's time that we have left. So there were two specific things that I want to look at um, that threatened to cloud the hope of uh, this church. And I want to look at what are those two things uh, and what did Jesus recommend that they do to clarify that hope, right? So cloud, what's clouding their hope and what's, what's going to help them clarify their hope? So the, the first thing that was clouding their hope was the fact that they had very little power. Uh, we see this in verse 8. And where said, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so there's a lot of ways you can translate that phrase, uh, very little power. 
but um, I think the best translation translates something to the effect of, you, I know you feel insignificant in the culture that you are pre- present in. I know you feel insignificant in the, in, the, in the city that you are present in. I know you feel insignificant in the, um, in the culture around you and the culture that you're trying to impact. And that's basically what Jesus is calling out here. He says, I recognize that you feel insignificant. And Jesus addresses that specific thing. So if you think about um, kind of the, some of the historical context that I gave you and some of the historical context that we've heard over the last few weeks that Shannon shared with us, we know that the church at Philadelphia were, was going against the grain uh, of the city. So the church of the Philadelphians uh, was going against the city that they lived in. And one of the, some of the ways that we, we know this is by just looking at the, the, the message of the church at Philadelphia versus the city of Philadelphia. The first one was the culture, like I said, was uh, moving towards a polytheistic culture, right? That's basically what the Greek culture was known for. It's like many gods, lots of religions, every way and uh, every uh, way that we don't even know. Here's a god for that. But the Christians claimed exclusivity. So once the culture is claiming um, polytheistic uh, religions while, Jesus, while the Christians are claiming an exclusive God. The Christians were moving away from the pagan gods and to worship this one true Yahweh. The, the Greeks were moving towards pagan gods. right? And they were trying to make up as many gods as they could uh, come up with. Um, and we know the story, if you, when you remember Paul's, uh, when he was in Ephesus, we see a, we see him recording that there was a statue to an unknown god. And it's because the Greeks were like, if we ever missed a god, we want to make sure we have a placeholder for him. So, but uh, the Christians had a completely different message. They were going against the grain. Uh, this was even true with the Jews. Uh, the Christians were trying to affirm the lordship and the uh, savior, uh, Jesus, while the Jews claimed that there was no Messiah and that there was no savior. Right? And uh, the, the Christians were trying to uh, proclaim that uh, God loved them and that God loved the city, while the Jews claimed that the Christians didn't even, didn't even know God, that God not even loved them. And so they were constantly fighting and ridiculed for their faith because of the culture that they lived in. And so Jesus recognized this in, the, in his uh, letter to them, uh, making uh, understanding that they felt insignificant powerless. And so, uh, as we look at uh, as we look at this um, at this specific uh, um, attribute that was trying to cloud their hope, uh, Jesus tries to address it by by saying, "This is how you clarify your hope." I know this is clouding your hope. Your insignificance is clouding your hope. But here's one way to uh, clarify that hope, and we see that um, by by the way Jesus introduces himself in this letter. Look with me in verse seven. In verse 7, he, said, he writes, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the key of David. That's an interesting imagery and an important one in this passage. Uh, the, the key of David actually refers back to a passage in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 22, I won't go through the whole story, but just a quick snippet of what's going on in Isaiah. Isaiah 22 is actually a prophecy that God claim, uh, gives to Isaiah to proclaim to Jerusalem. And the, the, uh, basically the prophecy is this whole uh, judgment that God proclaims to uh, Jerusalem. But in that uh, prophecy, he, he basically makes reference to this key of David. 
And basically, it refers to a guy called Eliakim. And you don't have to know much about him other than the fact that God had appointed him as the steward to the king's palace. He was going to be the, what you would refer to as today as the prime minister to the king's court. Right? And Eliakim was given this key of David. And the key of David indicated a couple of things. One, it indicated that um, Eliakim, this person, or whoever had the key, was the uh, representation of the king. He, would, he was the official representation of the king. He not only uh, was the representation, he, had access, he decided who had access to the king's court and the king's uh, kingdom. He also decided who had access to the resources of the king. So basically, he was the, uh, the gatekeeper that kept people uh, from accessing the king or from getting access to the king. And so this, when Jesus is making reference to this specific uh, imagery called the key of David, that is what he's doing. He is saying, I actually hold the key of David, the key that has access to the king, not just the king of Israel in this instance, but the one and true king, Yahweh. I have access to it. And because I have access to the key of David, and because I hold access to the entrance into God's kingdom, I am the one that decides who, which door will be open and which door will be closed. I decide who has access to God's kingdom and who doesn't. I have access to God, all of God's resources, and I decide who gets what and who gets it when. Right? And so you, you have to understand, as Jesus is telling them this, uh, the specific, uh, giving them this imagery, the church of Philadelphia would have had their eyes lit up. They're, they feel insignificant, they feel powerless in a culture that's pushing against them, but Jesus says, but I am the one that holds the key. I decide who gets, uh, who gets in and who gets out. It's not the Jews that decide who gets in and who gets out. You, the Jews don't decide who God loves and who doesn't. I do. And Jesus says, um, one of the things that he says here is, because I hold the key, I'm also the source of significance. So while you might feel insignificant in the culture that you live in, the God that you worship is the source of significance, and so you can find that in him. You don't have to look at the culture that you're in, but you can look to me to find that significance. And so uh, Jesus reminds them this as they kind of wrestle with this uh, threat of um, insignificance that w was um, threatening to cloud their hope. Jesus was, this is how you clarify it. The second thing that, um, oh, excuse me, before we go, go to the second thing that was clouding their hope, let's look at it. What, what does that mean for us? Like, what, does, what are uh, things in our own lives, current circumstances, current trials that you're going through? What are those things that in your life um, that makes you feel insignificant as a believer or as a person? Is it a job loss? Maybe it's a terrible boss at work. Uh, maybe it's sickness. Uh, maybe it's sin in your life. Maybe it's apathy. Like God's just given, blessed you with so much, you're like, uh, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing with all this. Uh, is it the way that ch your children have turned out or the way your children are turning out as we speak? Uh, is it depression? Is it an addiction? What, is, what, what are your current circumstances that are threatening to uh, cloud your hope? And as Jesus, uh, Jesus as, I, mean, I know specifically as, as we think about living in the culture that we live in in North America, um, I know sometimes as Christians or as a Christian myself, if I'm not careful, I can look around the culture and be like, we don't, we don't feel like we influence the culture that we live in. We're called to influence this culture that we live in, but we're not looked to as role models to be uh, to, to be emulated. Uh, what the Bible says is true and good, the culture says is bad and false. 
what the Bible says is bad and false, the culture says is true and good. Right? How do we as believers then still be salt and light in the city without feeling like we're insignificant in the culture that we're called to influence? And so uh, one of the things that we see here is that Jesus reminds us that uh, no matter how insignificant we feel, like he promises when his name is lifted up and when his name is proclaimed, he will draw all men unto him. And that we should not draw our significance or our insignificance from the fact of the way the culture reacts, but we need to look to him and hold our gaze at him and focus on him as the source of our significance. So can I ask you that, uh, will you let this promise to clarify your hope this morning? If you feel like you're in that situation, whether it's a personal trial or personal baggage from past sins, uh, can I ask you to clarify, help clarify this morning by looking to Jesus and recognizing that he is the source of significance in your life? The second thing that threatened to cloud their hope uh, was the fact that they were told lies about God. We see this uh, in, in this passage um, as the Jews, um, we see in verse 9, it says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So this, the, this letter specifically calls out one of the lies about God that the Jews were telling the Christians, and that is that God does not love them. They don't love God, and God doesn't love them. And oftentimes, I think we ourselves um, uh, face some of these lies. And lies about God are not the same thing as doubt. Uh, doubt is some, completely something different. Lies about God tend to cloud our hope and our faith and our vision for Jesus. It creates a sense of apathy in our souls. Um, and one of the lies, that, like I read, one of the lies that they were dealing with was that fact that Jesus, uh, the Jews were told that they, weren't, they, don't, they didn't love God or that God did not love them. And uh, Jesus has some very harsh words for the Jews. Uh, I won't go into all of the details just because of lack of time, but one of the things that he tells them is that I will make them come to you and declare that I love you. Um, and Jesus basically uses the imagery of, uh, um, of, of a nation that's been conquered. He basically says, they will come to you and bow down to you and declare this. And Jesus has pretty harsh words to the folks that uh, proclaim lies about God. But one of the things that I want to explore in that uh, respect is that as believers, we need to be diligent about the lies that we're being told. I feel like a lot of times we are told lies about God, either through culture or our own experiences. Or people that don't understand certain things well, they're told um, uh, lies about God. So, for, for example, uh, one of the things that we notice is, or I don't know uh, if you've experienced this, but I know I've experienced, experienced this, is that when I'm sick or when I'm going through a difficult circumstances, I wonder if God is actually good. Right? We, we see with culture, uh, whenever there's like um, um, natural disaster, we were asked, is God really good? Or how can there be suffering if there is a good God? Right? We ask ourselves if uh, God loves us if we were not seeing the things that we've been praying for. Right? These are certain lies that we kind of uh, internalize that kind of clouds our hope. We see this with Eve too in the Garden of Eden where Eve was experiencing such an awesome relationship with God and then the serpent shows up, right? And the serpent, what does the serpent say? The serpent says, just asks a question. It's like, why did, Jesus, why did God ask you not to eat of that tree? Is it because he doesn't want you to be like him? Right? Was basically a lie that, G, uh, that Satan, uh, the serpent, uh, planted into Eve's mind. 
And I think our experiences, if we're not careful, can cause that same effect in our own lives, where we're not only just doubting God, but we doubt His goodness, we doubt His character, we doubt His nature. Right? And uh, one of the things that uh, was happening in the church at Philadelphia was that they were wondering if they were loved by God. Right? They were being persecuted from all angles. They're like, if we are loved, why are we experiencing all these trials? And Jesus says and affirms them that they still haven't denied his name. And that is one of, one of the ways that we clarify our hope when we have lies being told to us about God is by affirming the lordship of, his, of him in our own lives. And so the way, that, the way we see that is in, in verse 8, we see him saying, excuse me, in verse, uh, yeah, in verse 8, the second half it says, I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And so this is one of the ways that we, they affirm the lordship of Jesus. Sometimes we think when, uh, when we think of the phrase, deny my name, we think, well, that's for the persecuted Christians that you know, don't deny Jesus as their lord. But I think even as North American believers that don't experience that level of persecution, this is very relevant to us. Because, um, again, as, as you've, if you've lived any life or as a believer, you know you're constantly being challenged uh, in, terms of the, in terms of God's uh, lordship over your life. So... I know for me, uh, when I was single and gave my life to Jesus, I was like, okay, you know, you're Lord of my life. I surrender my life to you, and it was all good. And then I got married, and I was like, oh, now i got to uh, care for this wife. I, I have a marriage uh, to work on, etc. I started, get, uh, you know, I started getting struggling with it, worrying about it, and I had, God had to remind me that not only am I Lord of your life, but I'm also Lord of your marriage. Right? And that was good until we had our first baby, and it was the same thing over and again. It's like, well, now I have a child to care for that cannot care for himself. Like, is he going to make it? Is he going to, uh, you know, uh, are we going to be able to protect him, going to give him everything that he needs? And God had to remind me, and Lindsay and I constantly talk about this, how we need to constantly remind ourselves that this child is God's and that God is not only Lord of our lives and our marriages, but also of our uh, children. And I don't know about you, you might have gone through some similar instance, right? Whether it's through a job loss, whether it is when a sickness, we, we constantly wonder if God is still Lord of our lives. And I think as believers, we have, to be, uh, we have to be careful and we have to be diligent to affirm God's Lordship in our life in every single area of our lives. And um, there are some ways that we can uh, uh, identify what are some of those areas in our lives where we need to affirm God's Lordship right? Uh, one of those is, is there an area of your life that you excessively worry about, right? Um, I know for me, there's a lot of those areas that I need to constantly address with God. Is it finances? Is it uh, your marriage? Is it your children? Is it your job? Is it your health? Is it caring for your parents? Whatever it is, is there an area of your life that you excessively worry? Maybe in that area of your life, you need to affirm God's lordship over your life. Um, some of us ex uh, experience doubt in our own salvation. Uh, whether it's, is, is, it, is, it, is it something that God's really done? Is God going to really give me victory over this sin? I've been battling for it for a while. But even though God promises that he will finish what he started, do we need to affirm God's lordship in that area of our life? Um, another thing, another way you know that you need to affirm God's lordship of your life in a specific area is if in that area of your life you rely on sin and lies to navigate your life in that area. So whether it's finances, whether it's your job, do you rely on lies and sin to navigate that life, navigate that area of your life? 
It's probably because you don't trust God to see you through that or you don't trust God to uh, care for you in that area. Is there an area of your life that you go to zero to 100 in under two seconds when it's brought up or addressed? It's probably an area that you need to affirm God's lordship over your life. Is there something that God called you to do, whether it's family, raising a family, or being in a ministry role? Is there any of those areas in your life that you feel like you're not making the impact that you thought you should be? Like God called me to, but I'm not seeing the results that I thought I would. I can relate. It's probably an area that we need to affirm God's lordship in our life. Because at the end of the day, it's not um, denying his name. It's not just saying, oh, I don't believe in Jesus. But it's also affirming his lordship in every single area of our lives. Uh, so how will you view your current circumstances? Whether it's a good time or a season of trial, will you uh, affirm God's lordship in your life? Because that's one of the ways you can clarify your hope as trials threaten to cloud your hope. I'm going to move on because we're running out of time. Um, this, so after Jesus says, these, there, here's two things that are going to cloud your hope. Clarify your hope by claiming or affirming the lordship of, your, of Jesus and the significance that you find in Jesus. But after you clarify your hope, uh, Jesus reminds them to hold fast. And we see that uh, in verse 11. In verse 11, Jesus says, uh, Jesus, uh, John writes, I am coming soon, talking about Jesus. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Um, and G- uh, here, uh, this is, by the way, the only command that Jesus gives the church at Philadelphia specifically. He says, hold fast. And so basically, if I had to title this sermon, it was basically hold fast. And Jesus here says, uh, he says, clarify your hope because Jesus is on his throne and he's still Lord. And hold fast because he's coming back for you. And here we see, um, we kind of need to look a little bit deeper into what does it mean to hold fast. So hold fast can sound something like hold on for dear life, right? That's not what hold fast specifically means. Hold fast specifically means to hold your position or hold your gaze, right? Not uh, hold on for dear life. Uh, We see in Acts 3.5, it's translated as, He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So That's kind of using that same phrase as hold fast. Uh, It's basically making sure that our gaze is fixed on something or someone, in this case it would be Jesus, expecting to receive something significant from him. And so uh, it basically underscores the area of who and in whom we have our confidence. Right? And basically, when you hold fast, you're affirming the lordship of Jesus in every decision that you make. He's accounted for in every area of your life. And it's not some random uh, God, pie in the sky kind of God. It's, he's accounted for in every decision of your life. That is how you know you hold fast to Jesus. Uh, by the way, we all hold fast to something. But if it's not Jesus, it's something else. Right? And to hold fast to Jesus, we probably need to let go of what we're holding fast to currently. Right? What are some of the things that we hold fast to currently? Well, again, here's a good way to find out what you're holding fast to. One of the key ways you know what you're holding fast to is to figure out how you deal with the trials in your life. What propels you to push through difficult seasons? What, uh, what propels you to make decisions that are godly? Right? Um, a lot of times... Um, we rely on uh, things that are easily accessible, whether it's our families, our people, money, our social status, our finances, or our jobs. We use those to propel us through our difficult seasons. 
go, have a problem in our marriage and we work longer and harder, or we have pro- problems with our children and we try harder and harder and they, they uh, react in the opposite direction, a lot of times we, we are self-reliant instead of Jesus-reliant. And so Jesus reminds us that one of the ways we hold fast is by uh, clinging to Jesus, but we have to let go of what we're holding fa- onto fast now. And one of the ways we know that is to uh, recognize what are the things that push us through uh, the difficult season of, seasons of our life, right? Because one of the things you'll notice, again, you probably, if you've been a believer any long, you know uh, that constantly there are things in your life that will try to usurp God's authority in your life. Whether it's finances, whether it's children, whether it's your spouse, whether it's a job, whether it's a church, whether it's a ministry role. Constantly, your, God's role in your life is being challenged, right? And that's why Jesus says to hold, on, hold fast, so practically, how do we hold fast as we wait for God's return? Well, the writer of Hebrews uh, addresses this specific question in Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. And I just want to read that passage. It'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. In Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet uh, together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, quickly, I just want to run through some ways that we can practically hold fast. One, we hold fast by fixing our eyes on the one who holds us. And I want us to make sure we, listen, we hear that clearly. We hold fast by fixing our eyes on the one who holds us. Because at the end of the day, if we look to Jesus as our source of identity, significance, uh, as our source of provision and fulfillment, we recognize that Jesus is holding us. Right? At the end of the day, we recognize that irrespective of how we're feeling, what this, uh, how our faith, how strong or how weak our faith is, we, we can rest on the fact that Jesus is holding you. Right? Even as you get distracted with different things in life, remember that God is the one that's holding you. Uh, I... I've heard of this analogy. I'm not sure if it's true because I actually haven't tried this. But I've been told like uh, when sailors are first trained to be out on the ocean for a long periods of time and they experience seasickness, they're asked to keep their eyes on the horizon because the horizon is fixed or looks fixed. Um, and so uh, even as their boat is or ship is um, in, a, in, a, in rough water, just they keep their eyes on the horizon, they feel a sense of calmness and, uh, and are able to overcome their seasickness. Uh, because their eyes are fixed on something that's steady and fixed. It's the same, same concept here. We need to hold fast as we hold fast to Jesus. When the trials of life and the storms of life blow through, we are able to stay steady because Jesus, we recognize who is at the, um, who is at the, head, of the, at the head of the boat or who is um, sitting on his throne. And Jesus is still sitting on his throne. Secondly, you hold fast by regularly confessing where our hope lies. I feel like this is something that I don't do well, and I think as believers we struggle with this. We sometimes just assume that everybody understands where our hope lies. But I think as Christians, we have to regularly confess where our hope lies. Not just to, uh, to ourselves, but to one another, to our families. We have to constantly remind each other where our hope lies. It's not just some random... Uh, it just need, we can't just assume that everybody understands where our hope lies or everybody remembers it on a regular basis. So that's the second way that we hold fast, by con- regularly confessing uh, our hope uh, in Jesus. Second, uh, third of all, third, thirdly, and from the passage we see that we hold on or we hold fast by not neglecting to meet together. 
It's so critical for us to meet together as believers, whether it's on a Sunday, whether it's on a different day. Uh, one of the reasons we do, ch- uh, the reason that we do church here is not so that we can check a box that says, I'm a churchgoer or I attend a church, I've done my religious duty. That's not why. We come to church and worship together as believers so we can encourage each other, so that we can support each other, so that we, can fi- we, can, uh, we realize that we grow st- to get, uh, stronger together as a community and as believers when we gather together and see how other people practice their faith. And so it's important that we, uh, that we not neglect the gathering together of saints. And lastly, you hold fast by stirring up one another to good love and good works. And so uh, even beyond the Sunday church gathering, we have to find ways to stir up each other. Like what are the ways that we encourage each other? Whether it's through a text whether it's through inviting somebody to your house or dinner or coffee, whatever the case may be, a game of golf, whatever the case may be, how are we stirring up each other? Or do we just wait till we see them next Sunday to check on them? And I know I'm guilty of that. Uh, and something that uh, this message has been convicting me of is how do we uh, take a proactive approach to being encouraging each other even as we go through our busy lives? Just checking on each other to see, okay, how, how, how are you doing? How is life going for you? Um, and um, lastly, uh, Jesus says, clarify your hope, hold fast because I'm coming back, and here is what I have prepared for you. And since the band comes up, I want us to look at just three promises that Jesus makes to the church at Philadelphia. And because one of the things that we, um, what Jesus says here is uh, towards the end of that passage um, is uh, in verses 12 and down, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has a year, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here Jesus uh, basically promised the church of Philadelphia three things, and I want us to look at those three things and how it, um, how it applies to us as we finish today. And the first thing, I also just want to show you this picture of uh, these pillars, they're actually uh, current-day ruins from the city of Philadelphia. And this, these are actually pillars from a, a pagan temple uh, from that area about the time that we see this letter being written. And here's one of the pictures. So basically, as these people would come back from come back to check on their city after an earthquake, they would see these pillars standing up. Somehow the pillars tend to always survive the earthquakes. And so when Jesus is writing to them and saying, hey, I'm going to make you pillars, not in a pagan temple, not in an earthly temple, but in my own eternal temple. If you go to the next slide, uh, you can see this is another entrance to one of those temples. So these pillars were massive. And as Jesus was telling them that he was going to make them pillars, they uh, clearly had an idea. They were easily able to relate to what Jesus was referring to. So he says, I will make you pillars uh, in, in my temple. And so you don't have to uh, run or you don't have to hide from your own city because in my city, you will be safe. The second thing he promises them that they will never have to leave the city, right? Like I told you, they had to constantly leave their city because of fear of being killed by toppling buildings. So Jesus says, in my kingdom, you will have stability and security. You will never have to leave it because in my, in my temple, in my eternal temple, you will find security and safety. And lastly, he said, I will write, he will write his name on them. And basically indicating that Jesus, uh, referring to a sense of ownership of our lives and adopting us into his family. It's a sense of belonging that they would have had. They, as people that were strangers in a city that was moving against them or pressuring them to uh, give up their hope, 
Jesus was saying, I will call you my own. I will write my name on you. Because in my, in, in my kingdom, you will be as my own, my very own. And so Jesus basically reminds them that uh, they're not holding fast to some vague um, promise, but that he's promised them three specific things on what they can look forward to. So not only uh, clarify your hope, not just hold fast, but he says, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back to bring you to uh, an eternal prosperity, an eternal uh, security that you have never experienced in the city that you live in now. So there are things that are threatening to cloud your hope today. Um, remember to clarify your hope in Jesus by looking to him for significance, but also looking to affirm him as the Lord of all areas of your life. Um, and as you, as you do that, remember to hold fast and keep your gaze and eyes focused on him and not on the things that are distracting you from it. Right? And talk through some of the ways that we can do that. And lastly, remember that as you experience trials in your life, as you experience and you hold fast uh, in this journey, at the end of it, God promises eternal security, stability, and eternal uh, belonging, uh, even as we recognize that we're strangers in the land that we live in today. One last thing as we uh, finish up today. Um, Shannon mentioned this last week, and I was, I was, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, 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 had a, I wanted to make a note to mention this too, and it was surprising to see that he had mentioned it in his sermon last week. But Easter is coming in a few weeks, like in case you didn't know. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I've been praying for personally is for three families that don't know Jesus to experience and know uh, him this Easter. And I'm not sure what your prayers, and I hope you are praying for somebody or uh, families that haven't experienced uh, Jesus, either because they have been told lies about God, that God is not good, that God does not care about them, that God does not love them because of their past sins. I want us to uh, think of and be in prayer for the people that you think might, uh, might find hope and comfort uh, from this message. Find ways that uh, are there family members that you know or friends or neighbors that can experience God's grace and mercy and fulfillment and find significance in Him um, as they deal with the lies that they have been told about God. Uh, will you be in prayer uh, with me about that as we think about it and as we move towards Easter um, and pray about who, who, do you, who, who should you be inviting to church or who, whether it's this church or another church? Who, who do you need to be encouraging and reaching out to? Let me pray for us as we uh, close today's service. Father, we thank you for um, the word that you've given us. Uh, it's easy to uh, say all of these things, but when you're in the middle of uh, sickness and a job loss and trials, it's hard, to for, it's hard to remember these things and to practice them. I pray for all the folks that are uh, gathered here today that uh, they will find encouragement in each other and keep their eyes fixed on you as their hope uh, is fanned um, by the faith of the believers around them. For their faithfulness not only in our own lives but in the lives of our neighbors, uh, our belief, fellow believers, uh, is a great sense of strength. I pray that you give us that. Uh, you remind us this. I pray that you, uh, the word that's uh, preached will comfort us, folks that are in seasons of trials, that it will convict folks that are, um, have been distracted, even as the sermon has convicted my, uh, my own heart. Uh, we pray for the folks that um, uh, have been working on, have been at it for a while. pray that you strengthen them, help us to 
continue to speak into their lives and uphold them in prayer. Pray also as Easter comes that we will be able to um, invite folks that uh, haven't experienced your grace, haven't experienced your, the significance that comes from you, but have relied on themselves and their own works and their own hands to find identity. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.